Maura Brady, you're very welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'd like to ask you, Maura, your name. Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day as of recording this, and uh, it's not just your surname, but your first name also is very Irish, so I'm, I'm guessing there's a story there. Yes, and St. Patrick's Day is one of my favorite holidays, though it was different this year in COVID. Um, but both of my parents' family traces back to Ireland. So um, I've got Donnelly on my mom's side, Brady on my dad's side. Uh, Maura, I think, was just a name they liked. Truthfully, not a family name, but my middle name is another surname that's Irish. So a lot of pride on this side for sure. Uh, well, where did you grow up? I grew up in Maine, actually. My parents, um, I think it's three generations back, perhaps, that came over. So part of the immigration over to the Northeast. Uh, my family's all from the New England area. But my dad is um, a professor who moved up to Maine before I was born. So I was actually the only one in my family who's a true Mainer. Um, but it was a, a great place to grow up. It's a beautiful state. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, I'm trying to think... Lake Willapisaukee, Winnipesaukee, I don't think that was, was that a New Maine? What's the, sorry? That's in New Hampshire. New Hampshire, New Hampshire, that was the state, but you traveled through Maine to, to get to New Hampshire, right? Yes. And uh, just, just an incredible part of the country, really beautiful. So. It's gorgeous. I didn't appreciate it growing up, but now love to yeah. go back. Definitely yeah. fall there is one of yeah. a kind. What are some of your early childhood memories that you cherish growing up? Oh boy, um, I was the youngest, so I did a lot of getting carted around to sporting events. We were a big baseball family, so spent a lot of hours and nights kind of at the local uh, fields and playing sandlot and all of that fun stuff. So yeah, it was, it was great to grow up uh, with a lot of family around. My mom was one of seven, so we had a lot of cousins, you know, big Irish Catholic family. So a lot of laughs, um, a lot of fun times. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that might have prepared you for a life in sales? <laughs> yeah, good at going with the punches for sure. Um, I like to tell people my mom actually had a daycare growing up where she stayed at home to watch my brother and sister. But by the time I came around, she was ready to get back into the working world. So at a young age, I went to daycare myself. And I think that is what I attribute to being social and outgoing and having a good immune system. So I'm a big proponent for getting kids into daycare early. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that just kind of helped me grow thick skin, get a lot of confidence um, and learn to you know, work with others well. Yeah. I mean, there may be something in that. There's a great book called Birth Order where the author looks at the characteristics of people based on where in the family line they're, they're born, whether they're the eldest child or the youngest. And it, it's, it's quite interesting. Yes, there's a lot of generalities, but they often play out as truisms as well, particularly with the younger ones who are left sometimes to fend for themselves. And sometimes they have the, the older siblings can be par parents as well, because they're often left minding them when their parents are busy doing something else. And it's interesting. I think there's uh, in, in Hollywood, they're saying a lot of the, the actors, the youngest child, because they get a lot of attention. Yeah. 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 Uh, I say that I was youngest child myself for a long time until my sister came along five years later and took that away from me. <laughs> but uh, 
so, so I, can, I can see some of that in it. It's like the parents are paranoid with the eldest child and then the others come along and it's like, yeah, I leave him, he'll be fine. She'll be fine. Yeah, yeah my yeah. mom likes to say with my brother, who was the first, if he dropped his pacifier on the ground, she'd boil water. With my sister, it would get under running water. And by the time it came to me, she'd just kind of blow on it and put it right back in my mouth. She was, <laughs> at that point, you know, was definitely uh, a lot more laid back when it came to, you know, raising me and giving me a little bit more independence and, and uh, freedom to explore. Mm. So how come you ended up in sales then? Yeah, like many, I think a mistake, truthfully, or at least wasn't part of the plan. Um, I originally was working in finance after college. Uh, wasn't very fulfilled by that after a couple of years and a recruiter reached out to me who was really good at their job at the right time. Um, and I said to her, point blank, I'll never work in sales. <laughs> um, but I was convinced by a really you know, great team that hired me. Um, and I figured if I was going to work really hard and wanted to feel like I could get value out of the time and energy I was putting into a company, regardless of things like how long I had been there, uh, a lot of the red tape that you can get in more of the large corporate Americas that I did not enjoy. So I gave it a shot um, and, and loved it and haven't, lo haven't looked back mm. since. That's interesting. Your experience of finance is not something a lot of salespeople would have. How do you think that has helped you in your sales career? I think there are a lot of skills, of course, that you can apply. It's good to be comfortable with numbers and be able to talk to ROI and business impact. Um, but I think beyond that, it was interesting at the time, the company I became a BDR at was hiring a lot from finance. And I think they were finding a certain pedigree of people who end up there in terms of just being hyper competitive with themselves, um, you know, having some flavor of professionalism and being able to work around hard deadlines and high expectations. So I think there was actually a pretty good parallel and we saw a lot of success. In fact, most of my SDR class came from people who came from some type of finance role. That's interesting that they would, yeah, they obviously saw something. In it. I'm, I'm, all, I'm curious to know if when you're a BDR and you're on the phone with somebody and they say, we have no budget and you're going, <laughs> BS. I used to work in finance. I know exactly where the money is. <laughs> I'm wondering if you ever had, does it give you that insight into where the money lies and how the money part of the process works? Uh, I think it does. I haven't really drawn that parallel myself, but absolutely. I think at the end of the day, when it comes to budget, it's around priorities. So I think knowing that you can challenge back on you know, is this just not something that you want to prioritize today? Do you not see enough value for, you know, X, Y, Z that we've laid out to want to make this the part of your budget that you're going to go and push for? So mm -hmm. I definitely think getting more comfortable with qualifying earlier on and, you know, understanding we got to get to the money sooner. I think mm -hmm. I probably sold to CFOs a lot sooner than a lot of other people because I knew at the end of the day they could, you know, rear their head at the end if we didn't have that budget conversation early on. Yeah. What, what would you say that if one of your reps came to you, I came to you and I said, hey, hey boss, um, listen, I, I'd love to do business with them, but, but they told me they have no budget. What, what would that conversation sound like? What, do, what day does that not happen? Uh, I think I've always been in an organization that's creating projects and you know maybe occasionally we have an RFP here or there, but it's very much us needing to go out and really 
pull that value out of them. So it's, you know, really going back to the discovery. Well, what's the pain that we're trying to help them achieve? And typically when we get the no budget comment, we're either too low or with somebody who, you know, doesn't have the power or we just frankly haven't done a good enough job doing our job in uncovering what the challenges are that we are well suited to help them overcome. Well, I, I know the one thing you didn't say was it, that it's got anything to do with budget or money. <laughs> you learn that pretty early on, I would say, or hopefully if you're going to have a, a long yeah. career in sales, that's something you, you want to yeah. early on be comfortable saying mm. BS on. Speaking of early on, what were some of the early lessons that you learned that were a, were a surprise to you where you went, hmm, I've never thought that sales is different. The pivotal um, moments. Yeah, I definitely do think that there's a misconception out there, myself included, when I took that recruiter's call that sellers are less intelligent and that they might be pushy and that they're sleazy. And I think early on, I you know, met executives who were very intelligent, not in sales, who said, I could never do that job and recognize that a sales profession is not for everyone and it's incredibly challenging and does inquire a lot of intellect. Um, and I think just understanding that there were people out there that appreciated that and respected that in a weird way kind of gave me the credibility that, you know, this is something that I could make a long-term career out of. When you think about the people you've worked with, BDRs, AEs, people who were really successful and did the job really, really well and stood out, what were the kind of things that you observed, the, the common traits? in them that you feel were pivotal in their success, including your own? I think the ones that are incredibly successful have a very high level of humility. I think a lot of times there's a confidence and almost an ego or bravado that salespeople take on. And the, the good ones are quick to let that part come off of their facade and are you know looking at how can they improve okay to admit that they were wrong and they want to learn. Um, I think it's the ones that continue to have that front that only push with, you know, I'm the one that knows what I'm doing. I have an idea. I have a game plan and aren't so good at maybe reflecting on where they can get better or how they could learn from their losses. Don't typically reach that potential that they could have of those that are more quick to say, you know, I've got a lot to learn. This is not a, a game I ever win. It's always evolving and it's always a challenge that I'm chasing. As a sales leader now, maybe you could share with us a little bit about the, the guiding principles and philosophies that guide you as a leader to create the kind of culture that supports that. Hopefully I'm allowed to say this. I feel because I'm Irish, I can get away with it this week, but don't be an asshole. Like that's just kind of a principle in life that I try to live by. I believe fully that people buy from people. Um, I've never been in an organization, thank goodness, that you know the sale ends at the contract and you hand it over and kind of say good luck. Um, every job I've ever had has really been, even from a solution perspective, around enhancing the customer experience. And I think as sellers, like that is so important to have in the forefront of our mind. So early on, you know, I'm working very closely with our customer success team and it's known by my reps kind of from day one that the expectation is we are a good partner to them so that our customers in the end see the full value that we 
are selling them and pitching them. Um, and I think that's something that some organizations can lose track of because you're so focused on just your number, but in reality, we're all stakeholders in the business. And I think as you develop into leadership and kind of continue to move up the ladder, that becomes even more important of just the overall health of the business and the success and happiness of your customers. Okay. Uh, as you moved from sales into sales leadership, what were some of the personal challenges you would have had in, in fitting into that role? What were you faced with? I mean, the obvious, uh, gender obviously is still something we're, we're needing to fight and overcome. Um, I think my first leadership call was me on a, a, you know, a Zoom screen. We've always been a remote company, so even pre-COVID, we were on a lot of Zooms. Um, and it was me and 12 guys. Um, and, you know, they're all great and they all are very respectful and appreciate me. But there's just, you know, certain things that you're not going to be able to replicate without having any other females there who can understand where you're coming from and my perspective. So I think that's something that was probably more underlying of what I needed to overcome. I think. Can you give us a few examples of that? You said there's some things that you would struggle to, I don't know, communicate. I can't remember the exact word you used, but, but, but maybe give us some detail on that. What are those things that you reckon... The, is it that the other people don't understand or don't resonate with? I think it's more of kind of the, in, just the nature of kind of your day-to-day -day conversations. I love sports, but like when you're on a call with 12 people and all you talk about is sports, you know, sometimes you want to talk about news or uh, cultural things that are happening in events and you just tend to go to sports when there's 12 men on a call. And that's just a very easy example but that can run through to everything from your hiring practices to your communication style to how you handle work-life balance. Um, and so I just think not having the, f the same diversity in terms of number of voices on a call can tend to sway where you're spending your time, how you're talking about things in a different manner. Men and women just have very different approaches and things when it comes to a lot of the topics that we're talking about on a leadership call. Um, and so you got to kind of find your voice and figure out how to make sure that your, your opinions are heard. Um, and mm. that's something that I'm continuously working on mm. and improving as we as an organization are also looking at how do we hire more women? How do we promote mm. from more within so that we're rounding out that leadership team? Mm. And it's been great to see us make, you know, advancements there. But I'd say across every company I've been at and the industry at a whole, there's still a long way to go. You said you grew up with a large family. I'm going to assume, tell me if I'm wrong, that there was, you know, boys and girls in, in that. How did you deal with those kind of things in those situations? Yeah, it was, we have a lot of strong females in our family. So my, my brother was actually pretty outnumbered. Um, but I'd say early on, you know, we didn't really have, again, we grew up on a baseball diamond and my dad coached both the the girls and the guys. Um, so I think we've always had a you know, good sense of equality. I've always worked well with men. My parents tried to convince me to go into the military because they thought uh, I'd be able to handle that, um, you know, going into finance. So I've always actually been a minority in my work scenario. I don't think that's something that defines me. Um, that being said, I think that you do tend to mask some of what might naturally be your characteristics in order to kind of blend in or feel kind of part of that team. And I think the older I get, the more I get into my leadership skills and find my own rhythm, 
it's important that it's my voice that's being heard and not mm. the one that I think needs mm. to be heard. Do you not think that we all mask elements of our own personality, our own thought process, our own attitudes when it comes to those group dynamics and, and, and I'm wondering maybe if the conversation is around something superficial like sport, it could be other things like politics can be very superficial too in terms of how it plays out in social discourse that often that is a strategy where we can find some common ground and I understand that kind of leads me full circle to your, your earlier point um, but that at, at some level we are all masking something because if we were all to blurt out exactly what we thought about who should be running the country or who should be running the company or who should be running a particular sales opportunity that we'd have a meltdown very quickly and therefore we need those strategies. And, and maybe what you're saying is, it would be great guys if it was more than just sport. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think at some point to be you know, a professional and functioning adult, you need to mask probably some of what we wanna say, especially this day and age. Um, but I think to your, to your point, yes, it's, it's, and the sports analogy is just a very frivolous one, but in general, I think needing to kind of round out the other opinion. I'm somebody who thinks, using the example of politics, that you, you can't really make your opinions if you don't understand the other side of the coin. And I think it's actually very detrimental to only think and only talk to people who have the same opinions as you. And so where I, I think that women in leadership need to make sure their voice is being heard is simply making sure that people understand other ideas and other ways of going about a certain challenge because that is what's gonna make organizations better and help you innovate faster and get different talent in. Otherwise, it's kinda of talking to people who are just gonna yes you and have the exact same kind of opinions and perception because of certain geographics and things that they've dealt with that are very similar to the rest of the team. I wanted to just explore that a little bit further with you because I'm wondering then is, okay, take the superficiality of small talk out of it because I think mm -hmm. that's, that's easy, easy overcome. Um, you mentioned about that there's maybe you feel held, not held back is the wrong word, but that there's a, something there where you feel there's another way of doing things and that there's maybe a group think that, that, that is genderized somewhat by the fact that there's so many men that they think a particular way and that Not are you yet. saying that we, you know females maybe have a this is a huge generalization but maybe a different approach to problem solving yes uh, that's exactly it and i think it's a different approach to a lot of things i mean candidly i think about how much in enterprise sales traveling has become part of the norm and that's kind of just been the way it is. You go on site and you're always on the road. There's almost a badge of honor with the number of miles that you take. And early on, I had somebody, I think it was one of my chief legal counsels, kind of call me and just ask why there weren't more women in sales. And she was just blown away when I explained to her how hard it is to live on the life, life on the road when you have a family at home and you are typically more of the caregiver for your kids. And that right there is something that I think COVID has helped a lot of people open their eyes to that you can be really successful in enterprise sales and not be on the road every day of the week. Yes, there's still value. I think we're all antsy to get back in front of our clients. But I think that when majority of the leadership team are men and they maybe are not having to hold that role at home, then they are kind of the ones creating that new norm that 
this is how we go about selling and you have to be on the road. Uh, we'll come back to the working from home. I think there's something there to explore, but also when you put that point to, I'm assuming it was a, a, a male, um, you said he was blown away by it. Is it that you think they just don't think about it? Here's what I'm asking is when you put it to them, do you, do you feel that you were understood and, and empathized with, uh, and it was just a case of, look, we never ever thought about it, but man, this is, this is not right. Well, the ironic thing is it was a female. And I mean, I think everyone in sales would think this is a pretty common reason. You know, it's hard when women start to have families for them to be on the road as much. That's not a secret. I just think that it's become such a norm that that is what you have to do to be successful in the role, that it's become accepted as almost a job you know, qualification on your resume that you are able to get on a plane five days a week. Um, and I think for this female to understand like that was so important for you to be able to move up the chain in sales that she was like, wow, no wonder so many women bow out before they get to that point. And the, I guess what I'm wondering is that, because I, I hadn't thought of that, even though, because again, my wife and I would have had, you know, she decided when my eldest child was born that she wanted to stay home and be the primary caregiver. And therefore you do, you take that for granted and you continue along and you just assume that that, that, that part of your life, you know, my responsibilities from the kid's point of view is I know there's always somebody there and therefore I can forget and I can travel and do what I need to do. But if she were in the workforce, I, I could find, I could understand how easy it would be to kind of just be blinkered and not see that. Um, I, I'm wondering how people respond when it is pointed out to them. That's, that's, that, that's what I'm wondering is to say, it's got, you know, I never thought of yeah. that, but yeah, you know, what, what could we do? Right. We can talk about it more. I mean, it's still really surprising how many organizations and, you know, I've worked at big organizations. I've worked at small organizations, kind of the benefits can always run the gamut, but it's amazing we haven't standardized more around paternal leave when it comes to sales plans. Um, I mean, that right there just, I think, says a lot about the fact that there haven't been more women in leadership roles kind of forcing these conversations, that things like how long we're letting, you know, women in sales go out to have their families but feel like they have a safety net to come back to and don't feel like their job is on the line or going to be jeopardized if they decide that they yeah. to do family. Yeah, we, see, see, we have that here in Europe. Oh, see, there you go. <laughs> we yeah. have a long way to go here in the States. But, but, um, but despite it, there's still, now it depends. If you look across Europe, so in Ireland, I can speak to that. I know it reasonably well, although it, it does change and it, it's evolving all the time. But I, for example, your job is guaranteed, I think is it for up to a year. Now you're not on full pay, you're on... You, you have, there's an allowance and most companies will top that up to full pay for a period of w several weeks, maybe even some months. It depends. Um, if you're in a public sector job, it's usually even longer. In Scandinavian countries, it's much more egalitarian. The issue we have here in Ireland is that I can get paternal leave. Sorry, not anymore. I'm pa my kids are growing up, thankfully. <laughs> but I can get paternal leave um, for a few days, but that's really kind of just 
scratching the surface. It's kind of like, you're, I think it's maybe two weeks you can, you can take and that you're there when the baby comes home, which is, I, I know is a particularly trying time, particularly if it's your first and, you know, I remember my wife coming home and like, here's the thing, we, we just don't think. I remember when my wife came home from hospital and drove home and had maybe, you know, 30 miles an hour the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> And, and of course, everybody on the road is an asshole driving too fast when that happens. And, uh, but I had arranged for a few of our friends to be in the house. We were going to celebrate. And I never thought about what my wife was feeling in terms of how exhausted she She went through an emergency cesarean, for God's sake. I, I know. Please don't judge me. <laughs> but like, you just don't think. And, that's, and I think that's it. So I think I'm wondering if awareness is nine-tenths the battle here. And that you're pushing out an open door, it's just there's a, a lack of awareness, you just don't think. And, uh, and as it's, but, but sorry, the other part of the problem here is that you can take off, as a woman, you can take off, I think it's six months, and you're guaranteed your job back. It may be a year, I can't remember. Uh, but a man can't do that, not here. Uh, in Scandinavia, they can, and in fact, you're forced in some Scandinavian countries <clears throat> to, uh, to take the leave. So it is much more, and it's, and it's like a year on full pay, I think. Yeah. So it's uh, and that's, very different. I, I think the, the same issue with needing to talk about it is needing to make it more clear for men that it's okay and in fact encouraged to take the full amount of time as well. Like I think in the States, a lot of companies have come far with making it an equal balance. So you might have a three month leave for any parent to take and you know, women obviously have to for a lot of biological and physical reasons. Um, but I think a lot of men have this pride of, you know, I'm only going to take a week and I'm going to come back to work because I'm in sales and I have a number and I need to hit. And I think as a culture yeah. and especially in, in the corporate world, we need to say, no, you need to take the time and, mm. and be there for your family because it's mm. very much also helping your wife mm. who's probably trying to recover and get back to her job. Mm. Um, something... so it's got to be both Sorry. sides of the coin, I think, to really make a yeah. change. There's something else there as well that, that is not discussed at all, uh, and I, it's a, I'll give you the male insight on it, is it's not so much the number to hit. There's probably an element of that. Uh, that would certainly be true if you were the only uh, breadwinner in, in a house, but then it's not an issue at all because your partner is at home. But where there's both, both partners are working, uh, there is a fear that if I don't show up, I'm going to be bypassed. Yes. And, and that's not just even maternity. I, a friend of mine who had very severe cancer and was out of the workforce and was obviously for, had no choice in that instance. But he said his biggest fear at times wasn't the cancer. It was that he would be irrelevant in the workforce, that he would be passed over. And there's only a certain window that if you, if you, if you, you know, in, in your evolution, going from sales to sales leadership, and if you, you kind of, if you miss out on that, that window, you lose out. And, and so there is, a, there is a fear. And I think that's the issue that organizations need to address and build into their, their culture, is that, that it's, it should be a badge of honor that you step out and step up rather than miss out, which is the fear. I, I could not agree more. Unfortunately, I think COVID is going to set us back a little bit in this particular space, just with now 
everyone being hyper on and always available. I think workaholics um, have really poured some gas on the fire in the last 18 months. Um, but I think just, you know, I, I have had a lot of conversations with colleagues and connections in other organizations and I think conversations are starting to happen more and more. I mean, we have a female vice president now in the Americas, you know, stuff like that is, is very encouraging, um, but yeah. we still have a ways to go. Yeah, I noticed in France now, and they're looking at it here, is uh, there is a, a right to your private space uh, legislation, meaning that you cannot get emails from work after, let's say, I think it's 6 p.m. or something like that, which I think is a big thing as well. Um, yeah, so there's a few things that, I mean, I, I, I don't like centralized kind of big government. However, I do think there's a, a role for them to step in, in situations like that. Um, because you're right, being always on is, uh, then you're never off. And then you're uh, never on your peak, in my opinion, at some point, to your point, you got to reset, you got to step away, slow down to yeah. speed up. Yeah. So that's that. That's one speed bump along the way, and it's a big one. So there is the you, you mentioned the. I, I I think it will change when there's just when there's a critical mass. It doesn't have to be necessarily fifty fifty, but like say if you had ten in, in on a leadership team and there was six men and and four or vice versa, it doesn't matter. There just needs to be a a balanced. Um, uh, so therefore, I'm I'm I, I've seen people suggest that it has to be 50-50 and maybe it does to get it there but after that you have to kind of just you know when when, when the faces are there and people have uh, a role model it becomes a whole lot easier I think. Yes I agree I don't know if it needs to be a 50-50 split again I think normalizing that men too can take that time and and do what they need to do to be a parental resource in their home um, I think even things like that will just help swing how we're doing things into a more fair state yeah. because there will be a more equal balance of kind of those expectations. I wonder will working from home facilitate that as well? Sorry, remote working, I should yeah. say. Uh, because before there was this pressure to be in the office at a certain time in the morning and not leave till well after closing time. And just that visibility was part of the identity. That's gone now. And maybe it'll free people up to be a lot more flexible. And so you know what? I don't care when you show up so long as the work gets done. And I'm I, optimistic hopefully. about that. Yes. And I think the traveling piece will be interesting as well. Like when you are not around for a couple of days, it's very hard to understand what everything else at home is happening and how much time and attention that takes. But people have been forced to experience that. I think probably have a lot of appreciation for their other halves yeah. uh, because of, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot. Yeah. I wonder also from a female perspective, if there's something in that that might be helpful too. And where, what I'm thinking of is I remember something I, I observed over many years is that when you work in a global organization, if you want to get on, if you want to go up the ladder, you have to be visible. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, you, you probably might, won't be familiar with the geography, but uh, when I worked in the UK, there was, I worked in Motorola. And there was two offices outside London, one in a place called Slough and another one was, I'm going to say maybe 20 miles, 30 miles away. It was a different division. And my boss's boss, who was the head of the, 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 the division I was in, he was never physically there. He based himself in the other office 
because that's where the visit, that's where the power line was, and it was clear what he was after. And now that's gone. So now it now it becomes an equalizer, and that visibility is no longer a key criteria, which was a big advantage to men that didn't have to be or didn't feel obliged, shall we say, uh, to be at home when the kids got home from school or at dinner time or whatever else it is. They could afford to take the time out to play those political games. You know, it's the old boys club. That's how it, that's how it worked. That's, that's no longer as relevant as it was. And I don't know that people want to go back to that. I'm curious about your own thoughts on it. Yeah, I completely agree. In finance, my first manager was a female, still to this day the only female manager I've had. Um, and she had recently had a child, and I saw, you know, at five o'clock she had to leave to go home and get her child from daycare. And that's almost when it felt like the boys' club would start. Of you know, let's go get drinks. And there was a there was a whole focus on FaceTime and how often you sat around the office until your managing director was done and wanted to go get a drink. And I just, that's not my style. I'm not someone who thinks, you know, hours for hours sake. That's why I loved sales because my value was a direct output of the effort and time I put in, not just sitting around looking for that FaceTime and validation. I do think it'll change. However, I, I personally am of the mindset that the elastic is going to snap back sooner rather than later when it comes to travel um, and kind of back into some of our our uh, routine, if you will. I don't think offices will come to be the same. Um, I think that people will definitely be more flexible on, on where you work. Um, in tech, I've always actually been in a very remote role. Um, so I haven't seen it as much as I think larger organizations that have kind of that in-office mentality. Um, but I'm optimistic that in some of those industries that will be, you know, less important in the coming years. I, I don't know if I can project in decades that we will mm. completely slide back to the old sure. days. Sure. In terms of some of the other challenges in going from a sales role, we often, you know, you've heard it before that it's not necessarily the best salespeople make the best sales leaders. Sure. So there's obviously, it's, it's a different job and it, it requires a different skill set. And when you transitioned from sales into sales leadership, what were the areas you discovered where you needed to work on more? And what lessons did you learn from it? Um, still one that I'm always working on and always open for tips is recruiting. I think that best leaders are those that hire people who are smarter than them and better at the job than they are. I think when I first started leading you, you know what you're good at, you've been successful at doing some things, so you wanna replicate that. So you start to you know, almost do the job of your team, you're micromanaging, you want everyone to kind of do it yourself and it's very easy to burn out and even worse, just hold back your team for all of the great value that they can add in their own unique way. And you know, part of that obviously is needing to figure out how you shift out of the weeds into coaching and enablement and helping them reach their potential. But I think also finding people that have skill sets that you don't have or bring, you know, I'm obviously very into having a diverse team and people that have unique backgrounds that are not necessarily, you know, the cookie cutter of what we've seen work, but figure out what they can bring and help all of us up our game and then help teach them, you know, some of the core processes and things that internally we know are gonna make them 
wildly successful. I'm curious about the, 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 what you said about hiring people who are more intelligent. And I know you didn't mean that literally, because that's, that's a, well, what do you mean by even intelligence? Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but smart, people who are smart and maybe have a different skill set. And as you think back to the managers you've had in your life or all the ones you've, you've come across along, along the road, um, where ego interferes with that process, because intellectually, you're absolutely spot on. If, clearly, if I can get people who are smarter or more skilled than I am, it actually means I have less work to do and I'll be more successful. However, there's an element that I've seen that where a, somebody doesn't, at, at a surface level, they'll, they'll, they'll say that, but then they don't really mean it because they feel threatened by somebody who's more skilled, that they might take their job or they may make them look bad. Or maybe they just don't have the skills to spot that in the first place. And I'm curious to know, as you, you know, how true is that? Is, is that valid at, at all as, a, as, a, as an idea? I definitely think that that's valid um, for sure. I think in sales, I have a harder time with that argument because at the end of the day, you're almost, I, I almost think I, I'm not doing my job if I don't have reps on my team that are doing, you know, way more successful than I am. It's, you know, Collectively, then that means that our team is doing better. I'm doing better. I'm elevating myself and our team. So, to me, I think in sales, that's great. Like, go crush it. You know, when it becomes a problem, as if there's an ego there and you're butting heads when it comes to kind of again fitting within our process. I think sales, it does come down to having a process that you can repeat that works for you. And I think that if your organization has one that they've invested in, built out, has proven it's worked and you have somebody who comes in who's smart but has an ego and wants to kind of bump against that, that's where there can be a lot of friction. But if someone comes in with the mentality of, hey, I know what I'm really good at, but I'm also eager to learn from you and I'm happy to you know, understand what's made this company successful, what's made you successful and give that a shot, then I think it can be a really great, a great relationship. Mm. Where would you like to go next in your career? Uh, so right now the focus is, you know, potentially IPO. I've, I've yet to be along for that ride. I've been at companies just after and just before. So that's something I think would be fun to kind of check the box on. Um, I'm somebody who likes to set goals kind of in six months and a year and then further out. I don't have a, a five-year plan, um, but I, I do know long-term the idea. Is that a Harley in the background? Yeah. <laughs> People are up and at it in Austin. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. I, so are you in downtown Austin? You're not at the moment. No, you're... I'm cl I live about 10 minutes outside of downtown Austin. Yeah, I have to say when I was in Motorola, I had some very uh, uh, fun nights in 6th Street. And what, what a place. Last night with Mardi Gras, people were out oh, about. Oh, stop, stop, stop. You're killing me. You're killing me. Uh, I'm curious to know, what was the name of the... There was this bar. I'm sorry, we'll get back to real conversation in a moment. But there was this bar, and I'm trying to remember what it was. It was something Joe's, or something Joe. And it was in the middle of 6th Street, but it had, like, there was no toilets. You had to go out the back. And in, certainly in the men's, it was these broken ceramic urinals falling off a wall. Ugh. And you were outside. If it was ra raining, obviously it doesn't rain that much. But it was, a, it was the diviest bar, but it was actually one of the best experiences I've had. And the beer wasn't on tap, it was only in bottles, and the blues music was just to die for. It was incredible. 
Yeah, we're not known for our bathrooms, but we've got great live music. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Well, look, that, that particular place, and again, I'm going back to mid-90s, so it's, it's a while ago. I'm sure maybe health and safety has come in since then and got them yeah. to... Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's, there's so many that could fit that bill on, West, on E6. Um, might, not, might not have lasted since then with all the UT students. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, I, where were we going? Yeah, I was, sorry, it was, the, it was the bike I heard in the background. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about IPO, and I was, I was interested to know how you see things changing for Sixth Sense after the IPO, and what your life will be like after the IPO. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think that I've been through enough companies and seen kind of different exits to know that there is a, a cycle. Um, I, I right now tell my team I want Six Sense to be the career highlight on their journey. Um, so at this point, I'm, I'm really focused on that. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of the leadership team here before. So there's definitely, a, you know, a lot of background, a lot of love, a lot of family here. So I don't, I don't know if hopefully I would have the chance to work with some of them again and kind of figure out what our next adventure would be and, and maybe have a different outcome on that one. But I think at the end of the day, what makes work so enjoyable is the people. And so yeah. as long as I continue to get to work with good people and, mm. and find ways to solve new challenges, I think I'll feel fulfilled. The IPO is obviously going to bring in a lot more money to the company. I'm not going to ask you what you would recommend to the people running that show. But if you had that kind of money in the organization, what would you do with it? Where would you spend it? Where would you invest it? Well, I think there's a lot we can do before the IPO and will do. Um, you know, I think that it's important to, to look at all the legs of the stool and not think about how to over-index. I've seen companies that just go in and double or triple their sales force. Um, and while that might help the top line, you know, that has other impacts when it comes to your support and your product and all of that. Um, so someone above my pay grade definitely will be making these decisions and has done them before and, and knows what they're doing. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for us to really double down on what we're doing well and, and move the needle in ways that the industry has not seen versus you know, others in the industry that right now might just look at how do we kind of tack on different acquisitions to kind of build a bigger platform. Um, I, I think that there's interest in going that way and I understand why you would, but it's hard to be a jack of all and mm. master of none. And I think we've got some secret sauce and what we do really well that we could really pour some, you know, gas on the fire and, and see mm. what happens in the next couple of yeah. years. And in reality, it doesn't have to change all that much because IPOs are just, I guess, often they're just there for the investors can get their money out. But the organization itself can stay on the same path. It doesn't have to go crazy with money it's raised. Right, right. Um, there's still a lot that can happen before then that might change the, the outcome of that. But I think that we're just starting to see a real appetite for doing sales and marketing in a different manner. I think that's something that's always excited me about Sixth Sense in this space is how can we be smarter with the data we have? How can we learn what our sisters and brothers in B2C have already done when it comes to personalization and automation and put some of the fun back into the B2B buying experience. At the end of the day, again, it's, we buy from people. We don't need to yeah. think of it as these you know, leads that 
don't have a personality and are just an email address. Um, so I think that we're just getting started. Um, and you know, an IPO can certainly bring more money and visibility to that, but it won't really change, I think, the mm. mission that we're here to, to go after. Well, I hope they're listening to you because you're a rocket sense, Maura, for sure. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. I'm just conscious we are up against the time and I want to respect that. Uh, final question for you. I ask all my guests the same question. It's this. When, when the time comes and you uh, depart this life to whatever comes next and there is a, uh, a book written about your life, what would the title of that book be? Um, it would probably be, which is not the most apt for my passing, but you can sleep when you're dead. I've always liked that saying. I think there's um, <laughs> a lot in this life that we can get out of it, and I wouldn't want to be napping through it. So I try to make the most of my days, um, and hopefully my memoir would reflect that. I actually think you've also given me the title for this podcast. Perfect. That would be I an honor. I absolutely love it. You can, there's an, you can sleep when you're dead. Yep. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you can sleep when you're dead. Plenty of time for that. Exactly. Uh, Maura Brady, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.